0: You are listening to the Lit Review podcast. We're your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad. I think it's essential for people to learn together in order to be able to understand what we're up against. We must disrupt.
1: We must disobey. We must agitate. We must escalate. We must break. We must create. We must. She transformed. Okay. I remember it. She was shocked
0: by my help. In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago.
2: This is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Man, my dog is more acknowledgement than homeless folks.
1: This is the house of generations, caged and naughty homes. Hey everyone! You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast, a literary podcast for the movement. And this is episode 49. Today we're diving into the complicated world of the nonprofit industrial complex. What the heck is the nonprofit industrial complex, you might ask? Keep asking and we'll tell you all about it. This is going to be a really great episode, but before we get started, just want to ask how are you doing today, Monica?
0: I am good. I am staying inside my house all day today because it is negative three, but feels like negative 23, and so I'm not going the fuck outside, and I'm very thankful for our guest for making it over here to my house today, so thank you, and I'm also really excited about this coffee that I'm drinking right now, and it definitely tastes better in this fancy new lit review mug we just got in. Hey! Oh, Paige is trying to do ASMR with the coffee mug, but there was no sound. Um, So if you want your own lit review mug, too, then you should become a monthly sustainer of our podcast through Patreon. At patreon.com, you can sign up to make monthly donations of a dollar or more, and this helps us cover our costs to sustain the podcast. And in return, you will get our endless appreciation and a bunch of other perks, including stickers, invites to live recordings bookmarks books and of course our one-of-a-kind limited supply coffee mug uh, you can start your monthly donation by going to
1: patreon.com slash the today special shout out to Bridget Gallagher and David Harris two of our current patrons thank you so much for helping make this project possible we really really appreciate you So today we're
0: talking to a really magical person in Chicago. Our guest is a queer disabled femme organizer who is a huge fan of funding, community led philanthropy and spreadsheets. And for those that don't know me very well, I am also a huge fan of spreadsheets. So that's why we get along so well. So Joy Messenger is on the show today and we'll be talking about the revolution will not be funded beyond the nonprofit industrial complex by Insight Women of Color Against Violence. Full disclosure, Joy and I are actually co-workers at Third Wave Fund, the only activist fund led by and for women of color, intersex, queer, and trans folks under 35 years old in the U.S. And so for those that aren't familiar with Third Wave Fund, we actually ensure young women, queer, and trans youth of color have the tools and resources that they need to lead powerful movements through monthly rapid response grants and more long-term capacity building grants. And so Joy manages third waves rapid response and multi-year grant making programs and supports our grantees and applicants through the grant seeking process. So before I say more about Joy, because I could rave about Joy all day, um, welcome to the show Joy. How are you doing today on this cold ass negative four day in Chicago?
2: I'm good. I braved the cold to make it over here. The like five or six block walk (laughs) through Rogers Park but I have three layers on top and two layers on bottom so
0: made it with all my fingers and toes intact. Yes (laughs) thank you thank you so much for coming out this way. So um, we start the show off every time the same way we really want to know who are you uh, what do you do and why do you do it?
2: Yeah, so as you already shared, um, my full time job is that I am a program officer at Third Wave Fund, and I oversee the grant making that we do there to young women of color and young transgender, gender nonconforming, intersex, and queer youth of color. Um, I also do, as part of my job, Uh, what's called donor organizing within the philanthropic world which I'll talk about a little bit and kind of how Interesting and sometimes strange that can be Um, and then outside of my paid work uh, In addition to just spending a lot of time with my really cute cat um, I do a little bit of community organizing um, And have lived in Chicago for eight years and done organizing with Asian and queer and migrant justice um, communities throughout that time in a number of different ways
1: So, again, the book today is The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, which at the time that it was first released was authored by Insight Women of Color Against Violence, but they now, their title is Insight Women, Transgender, and Gender Nonconforming People of Color Against Violence. Is that correct? Yes. Beautiful. So, what what led you to read this book? So, there were a number of things that led me to pick
2: the book up. Um, I think it has a really catchy title. The title was uh, the same as the 2004 conference that led to uh, the compilation of the book, which I can go into like a, f- a full history in a moment. Um, you know, I was also back in my slam poetry spoken word days. And so Sarah Jones had just come out with her poem and Wait, song. were you
0: a fan of, wait, you were a fan of slam poetry or you did slam poetry? I did slam poetry, tree, tree, tree. (laughs) Um, I did not
2: know that. I don't do it that much anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a different scene in Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Sarah Jones had come out with, uh, your revolution will not happen between my thighs. And so, you know, that name, plus the earlier kind of callback to um, Gil Scott Heron was very catchy to me, in addition to the fact that um, it's a a critical look at philanthropy and funding and how nonprofits have, how all of it has really impacted organizing and social movements. I was thinking about that, and as I was reading the book, realized that, um, you know, I had experienced this, just hadn't had the language for
0: it before. So first, before we dive in, can you just define, like, what is the nonprofit industrial complex? I feel like a lot of times I, I mean, the only time I hear industrial complex is with the prison industrial complex, right? Um, And so, the nonprofit industrial complex is a very uh, new term for me. So can you just maybe break down what that might mean? And then I have a follow-up question for that.
2: Sure. So uh, the idea of like a a system industrial complex started um, when Dwight Eisenhower was talking about the relationship between uh, like the U.S. military, the U.S. government, and um, arms dealers and like people who sold stuff for the military and how that – Uh, he predicted was going to become a really fraught relationship um, and he predicted that correctly which for folks who kind of know about Dwight Eisenhower's history, just in imperialism in the the military is, you know, interesting that that concept came from him but it speaks to this idea of like a system of relationships that um, in, in so many ways is like meant to produce profit and money rather than to achieve like some sort of good goal. Um, And so we see that in the military industrial complex, in the medical industrial complex, the prison industrial complex, where uh, because it's so intertwined with capitalism, like the the purpose becomes to make money rather than for You know any other kind of pretend goal of rehabilitation or uh, world peace or anything like that so when we move that sort of thinking over to the nonprofit world um, we think about this relationship of networks and organizations and also still the government um, that is there for a number of reasons number one to um, to make money and to, like, have money be within a particular system. So that would be, like, within the nonprofit 501c3 system and have money funneling through that. Um, to have a a way for folks to put wealth into, like, a tax-free shelter. Um, so – um, I'll talk a little bit about foundations and can share a bit about like how foundations came to be. Um, but it's a way for folks to um, to both like do some good um, as as they or others may see it, but then also keep their money, uh, safe from being taxed and be able to pass it down from generation to generation. It's about creating a space where folks can like have professionalization and build a career, um, and then, of course, maintenance of the status mm-hmm. quo. So that's the kind of relationship with the state. Um, and in the, in the book, and it kind of in Insight's other work, um, they describe it as a set of symbolic relationships that link political and financial technologies of state and owning class control with surveillance over public political ideology, including and especially emergent progressive and leftist social movements.
0: So, you mentioned uh, 501c3 briefly. So, is there a difference between a 501c3 and a nonprofit? Kind of. I so, I should know this. I'll probably edit the part out where I don't know how, what it is. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's it's actually okay that you don't know because it's really confusing and it's confusing on purpose, right? Like these systems and anything. It's related to the tax code and anything related to the tax code is confusing on purpose. So they are similar in the same way that every square is a rectangle, but not every rectangle is a square. Grassroots groups and community groups in the U.S. and on the lands that it is now the US, have existed forever. There have always been collectives and networks of people that come together to support each other, to support their communities, and to meet their communities' needs, as well to, as to create change in their community. The thing that created the 501 c 3 structure was the passage of the constitutional amendment that instituted an income tax. In the what's known as the robber barons era, Um, There was a lot of income inequality, Uh, people who were what was called captains of industry were making huge, huge, huge amounts of wealth, Um, and there wasn't an an income tax at the time. And so people who were poor and working class, very similar to now, were very, very, very poor. Like, there was just a huge gap um, between those folks, both in income and in wealth, As part of what was then referred to as progressive reforms, the 16th Amendment was passed and this instituted a federal income tax. And so as I like to say in workshops or other places where I'm doing this sort of like demystifying philanthropy education, after the income tax came along, then we also had ways for people to figure out how to not pay income taxes around the same time as the passage of the income tax, um, different individuals, namely Andrew Carnegie, Rockefeller family, the Sage family, created foundations that their wealth would then be used to pay for the public good of the community. So arts, uh, hospitals, schools. So following that, um, the US government passed a series of laws that created income tax exemptions for putting money into foundations or giving money to um, organizations with this 501c3 designation. Mm -hmm. So what 501c3 refers to is part of the IRS tax code. And so there's a a range of different 501c organizations. Mm -hmm. So like unions are their own 501c organization. different athletic groups like AAU they have their own um, 501c uh, political action committees or like groups that exist to get people elected which um, are often known as 501c4s it's just a different type so 501c3 are groups that um, in the law are defined as like having a charitable purpose or like being for the public good
1: yeah so it's... The depending on the type of work you want to do, there's certain statuses that you might need and they make it very, very difficult to to get those things. And also it becomes a way that you have the state looking at everything that you're doing exactly um, which can be you know really concerning when we're talking about you know our organization having young people whose names we don't want on things right we don't want to expose them to the state any more than they already are and so this is how just like that c3 c4 all those those words right facebook i think the facebook donations things like asada's doesn't have one because you need to be a 501 c3 but i believe when you make a donation through facebook they collect all of that information and so again this idea of like it's not really trying to do anything good for the world the goal is it's making someone money
2: yeah and i'm I mean, mean, nonprofit is just kind of an umbrella term Mm -hmm. for any group that's not distributing any excess money they have at the end of the year to other people. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, like huge institutions are nonprofits. And it doesn't mean that they're not making money. It just means that they're not redistributing the money that they have left over at the end of the year.
1: Can you actually walk us through the book a little bit more? Um, so if we haven't mentioned this yet, it's a compilation, right? So it's, it's a bunch of different authors, sort of short essays. And I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, do you have any favorite authors that are in there, any favorite uh, essays? What are some of the major themes that come up as you read along? So, before I do that, I'll give a little history
2: about the book um, and about the folks who wrote the book. So, Insight Women of Color Against Violence, and now uh, Insight Women, tra- Transgender, and Gender Unconforming People. Against- Uh, of Color Against Violence was founded in 2000 um, after a conference that they had at the University of California, Santa Barbara, I believe. Um, I always get Santa Barbara and Santa Cruz mixed up. I'm so sorry, California. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I have never lived west of the Mississippi. And uh, they're a national chapter-based organization that has chapters kind of across the country on different Different cities, different college campuses, and their main purpose is to, um, to organize and mobilize against interpersonal and state violence. And a lot of folks who who came together to, at the first conference and to help co-found Insight were folks who had worked in domestic violence and sexual assault and community safety and saw that so many of the solutions that were being proposed were very carceral. Like they were very dependent on the state, very dependent on punishment, by the state um and utilizing prison as a way to decrease violence when really so many of us know that that doesn't keep our communities safer and actually doesn't decrease things like domestic violence and sexual assault anyways um and they also wanted to uh to center the fact that state violence is a form of violence and that um Domestic violence and sexual violence and other forms of interpersonal violence live within that context. So that's kind of a little bit of the background of like where in how Insight came to be. This book itself was published in two thousand seven, after Insight had two kind of events happen in their organizational history and life. So. and both of them you can read about in uh, the preface and intro to the book Um, but one of them was they traveled abroad um, to India and were meeting with um, organizers and activists there who were really questioning like why are you trying to get money from rich folks in the government like how does that make you feel like you are going to make any change like if they wanted that change they would have let it happen already. Um, so that was one part and then the other the other piece which um, is what folks remember the most if they're familiar with the book is that uh, Insight had received a large grant about $100,000 from the Ford Foundation um, and was told that they could allocate that to different programs and different projects that they were working on and after doing that Um, About a quarter of the way into the first year of their grant, they were contacted by the Ford Foundation who rescinded the grant because a board member at the Ford Foundation disagreed with their stance on solidarity with Palestinian uh, liberation activists. Um, And so they uh, convened a conference in 2004 – at the University of California, Santa Barbara, called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. And then the book came out of the conversations that were had at that conference. The book was first published by like a small independent press called South End Press, which published a ton of really important revolutionary radical writing and is unfortunately no longer here. So it's also another story of kind of both in the economic collapse that happened shortly after this book was published and in recent years, thinking about and reflecting on like what is lost when we don't have those independent presses and what does it mean in, in our current media landscape when things get consolidated and are housed only in like corporate entities. The book was republished in 2017 by Duke University Press, but until then it was really hard to get the book. So folks were doing it very DIY, like passing around PDFs and things like that. So um, I know a number of folks who like have maybe only read a chapter here and there because it was really hard to get access to the book itself unless it was like on a scanned copy. So that's just, yeah, a little bit about about how the book came to be and within it, its own story of like revolutionary publishing (laughs) will not, also will not be funded and like let's have a
0: conversation about that too. So yeah, are there any essays that really stick out to you in this book like as very either transformative to you or like things you didn't know or yeah, and who are some of the writers? Like are we familiar with these writers or were they like one time sort of here's a chapter, I'm done, drops mic kind of thing?
2: Yeah, so I will say, like, I wasn't at um, the conference where Insight was founded, I wasn't at the conference where this work came together, so I don't want to, you know, call any particular writer a one-hit wonder, because um, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure in the world of Insight, they were not a one-hit wonder, even if they were a one-hit wonder for me or for other people reading the book. Um, <laughs> but I think, um, you know, it's, this is an anthology, and there are, it's a collection of essays, and every essay is different every essay is written by a different person and the book is broken down into three parts the rise of the nonprofit industrial complex nonprofits and global organizing and rethinking nonprofits reimagining resistance and i think that you know it's it's important that all three of these perspectives were included cuz the first part gives a lot of theory and history the second part um, gives some like real world examples of how the nonprofit industrial complex as a system impacted different groups that may or may not have been nonprofit organizations in the 501c3 sense. And then the last section um, provides some alternatives and ways to reimagine um, what the future could be. Um, I think that for someone who is just picking up the book, is just opening the book, you don't necessarily have to read uh, the essays in order. The same with any anthology, unless you are being assigned to read it for school, which it's good to know and to hear about academic programs, like having folks read this book, because I think it brings a, a really important critical lens to work in uh, social service field and just the nonprofit field overall. I did have a couple essays that I thought were important and that if folks you know only had time to read a few that I think that they should touch on. So from the first section, I, th- I thought in the shadow of the shadow state, particularly, was particularly important because it brought up this idea of philanthropic money being twice stolen wealth. So it was both money that has been taken from stolen land and stolen labor, but then also because it's being donated through a foundation, that means that someone is not paying taxes. And so it's money that, again, is like taken out of what was supposed to be, you know, a big pot of money for a social safety net for all of us. And I think that the idea of like the shadow state being, you know, like this post 1950, 1960, like voluntary sector and that. Organizations that are like on the outs, just the outside of that, um, like pointing, pointing to that, I think is really important. Um, And the idea that like, this is all happening kind of at the convergence of like, neoconservative ideas and neoliberal ideas. And That privatization is really the common factor, so it's not about whether we're like doing bad or doing good, but we're privatizing things instead of having them be there for the greater good in ways
1: that all people have made decisions about. Okay. I'm actually thinking of something I read in college that was talking about internationally, the ways that, you know, there are term non-governmental organizations, I think comes up a lot more, but that things that used to be part of how the U.S. will kind of offer loans, right, or like... um, through the world bank, through IMF, like all these sort of international things, the U S sort of strong arms, these other countries and says, you know, we'll partner with you on this trade thing, or we'll give you a loan through the world bank, but you have to essentially tear down that your social safety net and we'll replace it with U S non-governmental organizations. Right. Um, and so you have things that used to be a service that were just a given to how things were, are now only available through these nonprofits or non-governmental organizations that are controlled usually by outside people. Um, have all kinds of weird like hierarchies and red tapes and paperwork and just a big mess. You know,
2: we can see this in places where the U.S. government and U.S. foreign policy has created, like, local havoc and regional havoc. So Haiti, for example, is is known as a country that has the most NGOs or non-governmental organizations, which is, like, the language for um, what nonprofits would be referred to in the U.S., has the most NGOs per capita of any country in the world. And part of that is that Haiti also, like, the infrastructure of the government, for many reasons, U.S. foreign policy um, and intervention being, like, a huge contributing factor, like, they don't have an infrastructure for the way to, like, get services to the people that need them the same way that might exist in another space.
1: So what's the, the impact of all of this? You know, I see there's a, a chapter in here called The Filth on Philanthropy. I'm wondering if you can speak more to how this nonprofit industrial complex and funding from foundations has impacted the course of, of our movement, social justice movements.
2: I, I think anyone who may have had, may have had experience with um, doing community work and then someone comes in with a lot of money and they decide that they want to change things, that in the broadest sense, that's kind of the way that we've seen philanthropy operate in, in this sense. So, for example, you know, in the book, they talk about how various foundations, um, they name Ford Foundation and Open Society Foundations and, initi- and Open Society Initiative um, as being two. They may name um, Buffett and Gates Foundation, um, but if not, there are, there are a number of other books that um, as coming in and really applying their own strategies for what they think is right. So... For example, um, taking, instead of funding an activist or movement building um, or base building strategy, funding electoral strategies. So trying to get folks um, elected into office and um, encouraging people to organize within a system that already exists rather than being critical of that system. By providing individualized leadership development initiative funding for, say, you know, 10 executive directors of 10 different organizations rather than funding for um, an organization to um, train all of their people up or even like people in their community who are not trained up in organizing techniques or even just Yeah, the shift from organizing to like needing to learn how to be a manager, to raise money, to write budgets, to write reports, that these sorts of things when folks are engaging with foundations and foundation funding, even in the work that I'm doing at Third Wave, which by so many in the funding world is considered more accessible and more radical, like we still have those processes in place in a number of ways because we gets money from foundations as well, so we're reporting back to those foundations.
0: So how do we actually navigate this as organizers, right? Like we need so much money to sustain a lot of the work that we're doing, and sometimes fundraising is just really exhausting and like takes up a lot of our time when we could be better spending it, you know, doing political education and strategic organizing and so it would be it would be incredible to just get thousands of dollars with the snap of our fingers, right? Or more realistically by writing a huge grant proposal. So how do we navigate this complexity then as organizers?
2: I really believe in grassroots fundraising as a model, Um, and I know that there are, you know, even within the book, various takes on whether grassroots and individual fundraising from the people in your community and the people around you is the best approach, but uh, there is also a theme of, like, when the money is coming from the people in your community and the people who are doing this work and for whom this work will be benefiting, that it has the broadest level of sustainability, because it's not folks who, you know, could change their mind, and then half your budget is gone, or 100% of your budget is gone, Um the and- by from the government or from a foundation that's not connected to you and it also means that when you're getting money from your communities you are accountable to those communities and answering back to those communities rather than answering to people who like don't live there have not had the same experience as you don't share your identities that sort of thing which in many cases um is is what can happen sometimes with foundation funding especially if it's a foundation that's not located where you're living Grassroots fundraising is uh, one one technique um, that I would that I would suggest. And um, when there is a queer Asian organization in Chicago that I used to be part of, at the time we didn't take any foundation money because we didn't want to be on the hook for having to, you know, complete a certain number of. Uh, deliverables. We wanted to be able to keep the space for what the community wanted it for, which for that time was, you know, a little bit of organizing, a little bit of social um, togetherness, mostly coming together ro- over food, and community building and education with each other. So we did a lot of grassroots fundraising from within our communities, had a lot of events, and we had a small budget, but we were also, you know, really rooted in. The people that we were working with and people felt really connected to the work. I think that that may have changed a little bit. I'm not in the leadership um, of that group anymore, but it still is not an organization that necessarily has a lot of paid staff um, and so the, the direction of that hasn't always changed. I know that both of you are in organizations that rely heavily on grassroots fundraising, so I would actually be really interested in hearing your thoughts on like grassroots fundraising as a model.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, it's fascinating to me with asadas. I deal a lot less with the like grant applications and that process, but I see how much work that takes. I mean, it's tremendous. The The applying for grants, the, the interviews you have to do for them. And then once you get the grant from a foundation, it's not over. I mean, there's a lot of reporting you have to keep doing and site visits and people kind of checking in. But our grassroots fundraising, I don't know the exact percentage that we're at right now, but we really try to have like, a mo- like a significant amount of our funding coming from just regular people who know us not by, you know, sort of, um, what's the word, like heavily curated reports that we're releasing, but rather more just uh, what the work that we're doing and the impact that people see in that work or, or what they judge to be valuable. And so for us, that means that's why social media can be really important, quite frankly. It's how you sort of are reporting out to the world, like, hey, we're doing this. And we to be quite, quite, one, we don't put most of what we do, we don't put on social media, right? Like, our day to day of what Asadas is doing isn't tweetable. It's, it's not, doesn't do well, on, it's, it's not viral. Um, it's a lot of relationship building and just supporting each other. Um, but that's why these moments of, 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 um, of of protest, right? What big campaigns are really really important? Telling that story is important for people to see. Community orga- organizing works. Look at what when you are organized, you can we can win. Um, and now we're engaged in the citywide campaign. And, and people, what's beautiful to see is like people fund that. People are very, you know, we're um, we're able to put out a call and raise enough money to send thirty young people down to the Highlander, right? Which was a tremendous expense, and it was covered completely. It was actually is that true? There might have been. I think there was one rapid response grant we got. It's and I don't know if I've
2: ever told you this, Paige, but one of the things that I learned from you actually that's impacted my analysis as a grant maker was. The, in the ways that you talk about Asada's work and the work that you had previously done with We Charge Genocide and other groups um, fighting against criminalization, the term that you had used was um, the slow spade work of community and okay. how, yeah, <laughs> and how like that work is not always sexy. It can't always be photographed, but it happens and it needs to happen in order for those photographable viral moments to happen. And like I said, it's really impacted my analysis as a grantmaker and knowing what it actually means to fund community organizing and not just moments, single moments of direct action.
0: Yeah, I think just the, I mean, you said so many things I would have said um, around just like the grassroots fundraising piece and I think the only thing that I would add is that um, with For the People Artist Collective we've only like we literally created a coloring book that documented grassroots efforts in Chicago to then not only to archive and document our histories but also to fundraise right and like that like that coloring book literally sustains us all year long like every year every time we make a new one we're not I don't think we're doing one this year uh, or for this past year but I think something that we just now are recently you know tapping into is grant writing and and you know we're thankful to get two amazing grants from the Crossroads Fund here in Chicago and but actually through my work at Third Way Fund I've learned so much from like Nicole right Nicole does so much amazing like donor organizing and you know like I just witnessing and watching that process of like oh not only is it important to like get money from our community to like sustain this work but it's also important to like build relationships with them and and like thank them right sending thank you cards like at the end of the year is something that we do now right and like uh just naming that working class people and like low-income folks and like women of color black women are always sustaining and doing donor organizing and activism and we just we don't see it like that we only think of like rich white people that are, like, sustaining our, our movements, but it's, it's not, it's, it, it, like, it's, like, people like Tarana Burke, who are, like, you know, literally taking money out of their, out of her pocket to, like, f- uh, photocopy things when Me Too was not heard of at all, except for, like, in her community, right, and so I think about that a lot, and I think about how, yes, we need the, like, we need the grants sometimes, because it's super helpful, but also, like, yes, absolutely, grassroots fundraising is, like, what we really need to be focusing on, and, like, what really, actually Actually, does sustain a lot of the work that we see across the country, across the world. Monica, so I think that to bring it back to the book, one of the
2: um, one of the things that made me think of was um, the the in the essay, our cops in our heads and hearts. One of the things that Paula Rojas talks about in that book is like. A role for workers in an NGO or even within a volunteer collective can be doing some of that service work, some of that administrative work, and then not be participating as voters or decision makers. And then I also think about just that, you know, not everyone in movement work is an organizer, or that organizing can look so many ways. And so it Those are also the things that you're naming, like tasks that are part of grassroots fundraising of relationship building and, like, writing thank you cards. Like, those are also the pieces that people can take part in and can... The ways that we can bring people into the work, even if they're not comfortable with like phone banking or door knocking or doing a direct action or even asking people for money, that there is a place for all of us and that there are so many things that people can do and bring to the work. And then the other thing that it made me think of as you were talking about how, yes, like people of color and women and immigrants and all these folks have been doing this work forever is that, yeah, like philanthropy did not start with Andrew Carnegie. Like (laughs) philanthropy existed in the indigenous communities that we took land from all over the world and that like networks of care and mutual aid have existed forever for sick people, disabled people, um, people who are moving to new places, um, people who are you know being oppressed by governments or societies. Um, that like there's always been this kind of collectivist tradition of like we have to take care of each other. Or we are, like, we are all that we have. We are the best that we have. And one thing that I was, had actually, one thing that I had missed from the book, um, and maybe I missed it because it was part of my own experience coming up as, like, a young queer baby dyke, was this idea of, like, in the early 80s, like, folks who are HIV positive, like, that's how folks were taking care of each other back before the government was admitting that AIDS and HIV were a thing back before there were, you know, lots of drugs back before Medicaid was paying for people's prescriptions. Like, folks were getting together and, like, having spaghetti parties and, like, passing a hat around. And that tradition, those sorts of traditions are not necessarily recognized as philanthropy, but they are actually the most important
0: community philanthropy that we have. Absolutely correct. And so I know not all nonprofits are part of the philanthropic field, but as someone who works at a foundation, um, have you seen the philanthropic sector specifically shift either in positive or negative ways since this book has been released? Like, have things changed, haven't changed a few things have changed.
2: A lot of things haven't. Um, and to be fair, I have been employed um, in the f- in the philanthropic field for only the past three and a half years, um, and have been part of like raising money from foundations only for maybe the past I don't know, like less than a decade. And so, I definitely don't have you know like the a long term view um, in the sense that doesn't go back like decades. But what we did see after this book was published was that stock market crash in 2007, that like 2007 to 2009, pretty much. And what happened from that is that foundations really pulled back on their giving. So a private foundation, um, usually the ones that are like named after families um, or corporations are Kind of really recognizable ones. Um, they they make their money from having a really large savings account called an endowment that makes a ton of interest every year. And in order to not have to pay taxes on the income that they're making from that interest, they have to spend it. They have to spend at least five percent on either grant making or their administrative expenses or both. So some years, uh, foundations will give out more than the five percent. And some years they will give out the 5%, and then some years they may give out a little bit less than the 5%. So, like, I forget which year it was, but there was a National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy report where the average that folks were giving out was, like, just under 5%, which means there were definitely foundations that were giving out less than that, like, legally required 5% threshold. And that was something that folks saw during the – the crash of 2007 2008 because so much of how how much interest you can make on this big savings account that you have um on your endowment is dictated by the stock market and other things that i don't (laughs) fully understand um even in my like general understanding of economics and finances. Like, I just don't fully understand the stock market. So that's one trend that we saw is that people like really pulled back on giving to radical strategies, giving to uh, new and innovative things, wanting to take risk. Um, And a lot of it was like people being afraid that they weren't going to have as much money or they wanted to save it for down the road. Even the idea of like only giving out 5% is like such, it's so based in scarcity that there like won't be enough left for who, right? Because, you know, in the world we're living in, like conditions are catastrophic in so many ways that it's like, who are you waiting for? Like what are you waiting for? When like both the money that you have and the conditions under which you got that money actually contribute to like a longer or shorter life expectancy for the earth. So like, yeah, that's one trend I think about. Another trend that I think about in terms of like what has changed is um, that there's, there's a little bit more attention now to uh, racial justice work to reproductive justice work to trans-led organizing to all of these communities who haven't received philanthropic funding in the past. In the past, funding from foundations, but it's taken a really long time to get there. It's taken a lot of labor and conversations and a lot of education from often those same people who are like being impacted by not getting that money. In, like added cost to like their emotional health and well-being and it's in comparison to how much money is given out in a year is still like so so small um, social justice philanthropy in general like makes up a very small part of philanthropy like the most money that's given um, by foundations is given to, to hospitals museums and education you know like colleges are also registered as 501c3s so like any money that's given to like pay a professor from a foundation like that counts as a 501c3 donation like any money that's given to a hospital that's not a for-profit hospital the same thing and now that we have charter schools that are not run by governments but they're run by nonprofits, like those are also like c3 organizations too so there's just so many ways that like organizations have c3 status that we might not think that they do. Anyways, (laughs) that was a digression. Um, Most things, I would say there are a number of things that haven't changed. Even as foundations have expanded the types of issues that they're giving to, they may still not be giving money in a way where people can address the root causes of why those issues exist. So, you know, before when I had mentioned that um, one way that, people see foundations as um, interfering with social movements is like when they want money for organizing and base building and then they get money for electoral strategies so like that's a thing that we see and a thing that we have continued to see so like you know we see it in um, just one like very mainstream example is like in the women's march like we saw the women's march as like this uh very decentralized kind of call on social media for people to gather that then became a nonprofit. um that then became a call for people to like go to the polls and vote so not and not to say that like voting is not important yeah not to have like a an opinion on it either way but just that you know it's it has moved from like a a mass movement call to an organization that like has staff and that has a uh, Tax status to like a very specific way that people's energy is being directed towards a system that already exists.
1: I really appreciate this conversation. I think it's reminding me how. How terrifying it is that level of influence and control people with money try to insert onto our movements through through the fund, providing a funding source. But it comes with strings, of course. And I'm thinking about the, the Panthers and how I remember learning, like, oh, they it was expensive to do what they were doing. And they had to figure out creative ways to get funding. And so that this has been something like how we create resources or how we secure resources has been under threat for a very long time and we have to study that. And I think the Panthers are a great example of of creative solutions that are all in the spirit of self-defense, not just in a physical altercation, but just of thinking about what do our communities need to defend themselves. And you use this language around networks of care and mutual aid, and that's an indigenous concept. And so it's that history is there, those practices are there, but it's so critical that organizers read this book and study that history so that we can protect ourselves. Money is a form of power that's absolutely used to control us. I'm like making intense eye contact right now. All right, so anyways, yeah, thank you, my brain. We're going to quickly share, uh, We at the end of last year, we drew names from the Lit Review supporters and for our end of year book raffle. And Joy, you've been supporting us since the beginning. Thank you very much. And it was your name that we pulled out. Yay! (laughs) I'm so excited because the
2: books that I got were actually ones I wanted to read. And yeah, I have, I've been super excited to support you all from the beginning. I remember the Facebook post where you all were trying to come up with a name and someone, met, someone suggested the lit review and everyone was just like, what?
1: That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we're trying to, to our next season, we really hope to have young uh, young act organizers as our, our guests. And uh, we want to make sure that they get some kind of compensation and we want to, you know, really improve the editing and sound quality so that this becomes a resource that lasts long into the future. And to compensate, you know, this is a lot of time and the equipment you use isn't cheap. So anyways, all these things, they help a lot. Uh, but we're also excited to just share books. And so uh, we're you'll have Making Black Lives Matter by Chicago. Own, Making All Black Lives Matter by Chicago's own Barbara Ransby, and How to Read a Protest The Art of Organizing and Resistance by L.A. Kaufman, who was a guest in our first season. Yay! Thank you, Yay. So, much. Thank
2: you so much. Thank you. And in the spirit of um, just my love and devotion to grassroots fundraising, I would encourage everyone to check out the Patreon page. And I'm proud to be a Patreon supporter.
1: It can be a dollar a month, y'all. It's like buying me a beer. Two beers, two beers. <laughs> Depends on where we go. I do like my craft. All right, I'm a little bougie with the beer. But if yeah, I'll have you close this out, though. You know, as, in, as always, thank you so much for your time and sharing all of your insights and would love to hear a favorite passage to close this out.
2: I'm going to read a passage from Radical Social Change, which is the opening essay in part three of the book, Rethinking Nonprofits, Reimagining Resistance. Um, and I chose this passage um, because it, it speaks to what I had mentioned earlier, the importance of investing in the long-term work, not just what um, can go viral, not just what um, can look pretty in a report or even can be reported on in a report. There's so much work that is done in communities that it's hard to write or even sometimes talk about if you're not experiencing. The struggle for revolutionary change in this country has been derailed not only due to institutionalization of social justice movements, but also because of our inability to quiet our egos individual leaders and organizations are constantly playing the fame game reinventing the wheel and promoting their own names instead of focusing on what is truly needed to bring about change sometimes what is needed is not so sexy sometimes the most radical thing we can do is to follow the lead of others social change is only radical if it promotes struggle and growth at every level for the society at large in our intimate and everyday relationships and internally within ourselves. It's interesting to to note the central role of horizontal consensus-based shared leadership in all the emerging revolutionary movements in Latin America. They are expanding the concept of what we traditionally think of as quote-unquote political work. There, the process of working for change and social justice is intimately tied to how people live their daily lives. This is what I think many of us at Sister to, to sister, cherish about the collective work that we're trying to do, even while understanding and acknowledging the many contradictions and challenges. It is thorough and integral and it challenges us to try to model our vision for a different world. So often we are confronted by the lack of integrity and hypocrisy of those who do not practice what they preach. We are so trapped into hierarchical, corporate, nonprofit models that we are unable to structure ourselves differently, even when our missions advocate empowerment and self determination for, oppre- for oppressed communities. When we begin to have the courage to imagine alternatives to the molds we find ourselves in, then we begin to practice what we preach. Our commitment becomes much more about the process we use to engage with our communities than about the work, my outcome, what I'm able to produce. And this is truly radical.
1: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are
0: your co hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May. Two Chicago based organizers.
1: Special shout out to the Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College.
0: Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place.
1: Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook.
0: And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at Lit Review Shy. Keep reading!